0: general goes to war. The general, Joseph Mobutu, commander of the Congolese army. Here, leaving Léopoldville, capital of the Congo, to see his troops in action. His destination, Kikwit, chief town in Kwilu province. For it's here that the Congo is once again being torn by civil war. This time, a revolt against the central government by left-wing rebels, supported by communist China. In the bush of Kwilu province, local tribesmen are supporting 15,000 guerrilla troops. On his way to the war zone, General Mobutu, back on duty after a month's leave, discusses the situation with a Belgian military advisor. The seriousness of the Quilu revolt has only just been admitted by the Congolese government. Until three weeks ago, they played it down. Now they see it as a bid to set a pro-communist regime in the Congo, in the heart of Africa. But Mobutu's men in Quilu face a hard task. There's only 1,500 of them to hunt for guerrillas in an area half as big as Belgium. Mobutu will find it hard to spare many more men. His total army strength of 30,000 is already fully stretched, keeping the peace in a country nearly the size of Western Europe. Another problem. From the end of June, Mobutu won't be able to call on help from the United Nations force. Its 5,000 men are finally being withdrawn. But even in the interval, Mobutu is unlikely to ask the UN to intervene actively. He wants to prove that the Congolese army can win its own battles. But if it can't, the Congo's future will indeed be grim. The Quilu rebels are virtually a bow and arrow army, but they're well organized. Their leader, Pierre Mulele, was trained in guerrilla warfare in communist China. His revolt may well be a major move in Peking's drive to gain Africa for Chinese-style communism. Moleles men call themselves the jeunesse. It means youth. These are some of the 300 rebels being held captive in Kikwit town. Their communism is primitive enough. They say it will give them everything the white man has. The few rifles they possess are crudely made. They mostly use bows and arrows. On his visit to Kikwit, General Mobutu tested a rebel bow and arrow. A poisoned arrow killed his own chief of staff four weeks ago.
1: begin today with the Belgo Congolese Roundtable Conference in 1960. While there was the conference itself was held with the main leaders of the Congolese Liberation Movement, including Joseph Kasabubu, Patrice Lumumba was not present. Resolution 14 of the conference adopted decided that there would be a second conference, one that's far less known about than the very famous Roundtable Conference roundtable. that led to independence. This resolution adopted indicated that there would be a separate economic roundtable held in May of 1960, where Moise Chambe exclusively represented the Congolese actors, and on the other side of the table was the Committee Spécial du, Cong- du Katanga, and the main actors of the Union Minière. On June 24th of 1960. These actors together signed a convention in which the assets of the company Du Katanga, the main mining corporation in the Congo, were unilaterally given back to the Union Minière, and the company Du Katanga would receive an indemnification of one billion Belgian francs. This was ratified by decree of the Belgian government without any provision for the division of these assets uh, to the independent Congolese government. This would set the stage in the 1960s for the discussion around what to do with the future of the corporation which we'll be discussing at length today, one of the most powerful mining companies, possibly companies ever that at one point would control 70% of the entire mining industry of the Congo acted virtually as a parastate entity with its own military, supported secessions, assassinations, murders, in general, bad acting, and in the process earned 40 billion, it's roughly estimated in value from its extraction in mining in the Congo. That corporation is the Union Minière du Katanga, the main mining company in the Congo. And it's where we're beginning our episode today, discussing how this corporation came to be, how it shifted its forms with the independence of the Congo, and how still to this day, the mining industry controls so much of the resources and extraction of the Congo. So some of the history of this entity begins in, the early colonization period of the Congo with King Leopold II. In 1891, King Leopold chartered the company, forming the Compagnie du Katanga to organize activities in, in the Katanga region, where the majority of the mining occurred. In 1990, the Congo Free State and the Compagnie du Katanga formed the Comité Spécial du Katanga and gave... Two-thirds of the assets to the Congo Free State, which was the personal property of King Leopold II, and one-third of the assets to the Katanga province, which began a regional split and division that would constantly invest Katanga with more resources, more development than the other regions of the Congo, as would play out in the 1960s. Of course, this entity wasn't just owned by Belgian capital, represented by the Société Générale du Belge, which was the main bank of Belgium. It also had significant investment by Tanganyika Concessions Limited, which represented British capital. And this bank, which was at the center of Belgian and colonial economy, would provide the majority The Société Générale, by the start of World War II, would control 70% of the Congolese economy. And during its heyday, the Union Minière would hold quasi-governmental power in Katanga. It operated schools, dispensaries, hospitals, sporting establishments. It enjoyed virtually unlimited funds from Belgian banks. Belgian profits from the Union Minière were in excess of 3.5 billion Belgian francs. uh, And export duties paid to the Congolese government constituted 50% of the government's revenue. So this was a massively powerful corporation. Some statistics on the minerals produced. The, U- the Union Mini Air had annual sales of 200 million U.S. dollars. It produced 60% of the, re- of the uranium in the West, which we'll continue to talk about uranium as it's an interesting anecdote. of all cobalt in the world, 10% of the world's copper, and it had 24 affiliates, including hydroelectric plants, chemical factories, and railways. So there were estimates by the 1960s that this portfolio controlled by the Union Miniere represented anywhere of 35 to 40 billion Belgian francs. But as we'll discuss, the process of negotiating these assets and finding... Uh, nationalization process in the end would not be able to retain this this value or receive these assets to the Congolese government the union minier was very successful in arranging its um its assets to be taken out of the congo yeah yeah that's really interesting about the uh
2: history of the union minier and i just wanted to add um that often the colonization of congo is conceived as being uh, exclusively this Belgian project. And we, I think we talked about a little, bit, a little bit about this in the last in the last um, episode. But in fact, it was always a uh, um, like a multinational enterprise. Really, that the uh, various countries of uh, Western Europe and also the US they were always uh, active in this whole process. Uh, one really interesting thing is that I mean, if if I recall. Correctly, uh, is that the USA was actually the first country to recognize the Congo Free State? So, correct me if I'm wrong, Joseph. Is, is, is no, that, is I that think correct? that's right. Yeah, I remember reading that in uh, in the thing maybe the Poto book, um, and that it's really important. To, uh so the way that it's conceived by the liberal uh, liberal literature and so on is that uh, Belgian Congo was first of all uniquely evil among the different colonial um uh, uh, projects and secondly that it was evil because of because of the belgians in particular uh and i'm i'm obviously not denying that uh, extremely awful things happened in belgium and that the Bo- uh, in congo and the belgians were responsible but the fact is is that the this was a joint venture of the different western uh colonial powers and um I can get up some more statistics that I have about the different, but you already mentioned about the different uh, ownership shares of the different Western European and American, one, the USA, in uh, the Union Minière at, at the very beginning. But um, it's important to conceptualize this as really they. Uh, I think I, I remember reading this in I believe the Poto book, uh, but different books also write about this. Is that in fact there was this kind of desire uh, on this on the behalf. Of, uh, of the Americans, uh, maybe the British as well, um, particularly the Americans, I understand, uh, to let the Belgians take Congo, because since the Belgians were quite weak comparatively, it'd be possible to share the Congo you know, between the different colonial powers. And there was less likelihood of the Congo's resources being monopolized. If the Belgians took it, because the Belgians just wouldn't be able to really monopolize it in the way that maybe you know France or something or uh, could. And since the Congo is this huge area of uh, with you know, I mean, the, but it's was, it was a huge area. I mean, the, re, the mineral resources weren't so well known back then, but they still had an idea of some at least of some different re, uh, resource resources that could be extracted from there. But uh, if this huge area, this kind of power vacuum, could be occupied there. Weak, weaker power that could be more easily controlled it'd be, it'd be more possible to take control to use these resources as well and to share them out to prevent uh, I suppose some kind of excessive conflicts between the different colonial powers so anyway that's just a really important thing that i think and you can really see that with the uh, the different ownership shares i mean this was the sgb which is the one of the different iterations basically of the union union as i understand right Right, Joseph. And uh, this is the statistics for uh, the um, uh, very beginning of the 20th century, so like 1905 or so. And Belgian financial groups representing King Leopold, they only controlled uh, about half of the shares, and the rest were owned by British banks. Um, And then also uh, American, different financial groups, they were very, very involved. Uh, at the beginning of the 20th century and and before as well. Uh, so yeah, there, there's plenty of statistics, but safe to say essentially that um, it was never just a Belgian affair. It was it
1: was already was always heavy involvement by different Western powers. Yeah, definitely agreed on the point of the economic backing that was present by multiple Western companies. So you have Tengen Yuka concessions, for example, a British-owned asset that's mining in uh, South southeastern africa is 40% of the ownership of what ultimately becomes the conglomerate of the union miniere which is mining in the katanga region in addition this uh i wanted to add as well that this corporation would become this some of the the statistics on uh its the height of its power but at at a certain point The company became the world's third largest producer of copper, the largest producer of cobalt and radium, and one of the world's most important producers of germanium. And some of these resources may not, I think people will be familiar perhaps with uranium, but people may not necessarily understand why these resources are so important for the union to control and why they're making so much profit off of extracting cobalt. Today, we know perhaps the cobalt is is very important for, our phones and uh, other electronic devices that we use, but at this time, I think it's especially interesting to note some of the role some of the uh uses of of these uh alloys that were being extracted, so for example, all of them are being used to some extent in electrical equipment, strategic material alloys, metallurgical industry, of course, with uranium nuclear material, which we'll touch on. Uh, electroplating, so all of these things that especially are useful when you're conducting war and that will be very useful to the Allied war effort uh, for example with uranium and I just, I just want I just wanted to add as well that the um,
2: uh, as I understand the uh, cobalt was used in particular for the production of different uh, engines um, mm-hmm. in particular um, for aeroplane engines different aeronautics um, applications so um, it was uh, extremely important uh, in in the military sense but also in general uh, for general economic economic development um, and you can really see the sense in which um, I mean we'll, we'll talk about this some more soon but um, in terms of the whole unequal exchange framework which we're using it's that uh, once you can get uh, cheapened uh, raw materials then it becomes much easier to uh, bear the costs of uh, producing these processed, uh, more complicated goods, which you use with these raw materials. And uh, securing access to cheapened raw materials is really crucial um, when it comes to securing these uh, high-tech sectors that the the high-wage countries depend on to keep their wages high. Um, Which is something with the whole theoretical framework of which we've elaborated in our first episode of this series. Uh, So we won't go over too much, but suffice to say, uh, it's very important to have access to these cheaper materials that would be much more expensive if they were produced in a country without slave labor, for instance, that Joseph was just talking about, um, which existed in the colonial um, period of Congo and where the wages, of course, were many, many orders of magnitude lower than wages in um, any mine in the first world. Um, yeah, so uranium is uh, definitely one of the um, most important mineral exports that the Belgian colonial administration uh, exported from from Congo uh, in terms of the world economy and uh, in terms of also Western military supremacy in particular. Um, and the first mine, the first uranium mine, was opened in the Belgian Congo in 1921. Um, and by 1926, the... Um, um, Belgian, basically mineral um, mon- monopoly company in the Congo uh, had a essentially a monopoly on the global uranium market, um, and uh, I mean just as an as an example of how important this was, eighty percent of the uranium used in the Manhattan Project for the uh, creation of the first nuclear bomb came from the uh, deposits in Belgian Congo, um, and this was in particular a a worry during World War II, over control of the Congo. Uh, apparently, Einstein even uh, wrote a letter to the Belgians warning them not to uh, give control of uh, the, the Congo to the Nazis in order to uh, avoid control of this really incredibly strategic uh, yeah. mineral during, the, during wartime.
1: Yeah, just some very interesting um, information in terms of the fact that the So you have this shady character, Edgar Sangier, who is the director of Union Minier, and he had stockpiled 1,000 tons of uranium in a warehouse on Staten Island in New York. Uh, no idea why he did that. But of course, it shows more than anything the very close relationship between Union Minier as a very nefarious actor with the American with American imperialism with American industry so you have this character Colonel Ken Nichols who uh, this is a bit of a segue but for those I think it's interesting we're talking about this because of the recent we were commenting on this separately but you have the release of this movie Oppenheimer which very much glorifies the process of building the, Ma- the Manhattan Project and the nuclear bomb, but in, in this is the reality of how this process was uh, achieved, was you have this colonel who worked on the Manhattan Project who goes in and purchases this ore that's been refined and stockpiled. And one of the things that... So this is, I think, will help us comment as we go throughout in this episode to talk about how the Congo... In The the big picture is that the Congo is shifting uh, the hegemonic imperialist control from Belgium to the United States over time. You can see that in the ownership of Union Minière and the mining in the Congo itself. You can see that in even this uranium dealing that the U.S. is beginning to realize just how important the uranium access is. Uh, So this was shipped uh, by a commercial arm of Union Mini Air, the African Metal Corps. And then uh, the shipments just would continue throughout after 1942. Um, But in the process, the U.S. also sent in uh, the Army Corps of Engineers to help actually make the mining facility run in Katanga. So you have the U.S. Army present on the ground helping to ensure that this uranium is being mined. In addition, you have the... You have the Office of Strategic Services, which is the precursor to the CIA, uh, which is the U.S. foreign uh, intelligence apparatus during World War II. It's used primarily, and they are present on the ground as well, helping to ensure that the mining is successful and also that none of the they they want to ensure that Belgium, which is occupied by the Nazis at this time, and has a shipment of uranium that, that has been sent to brussels that was captured by the nazis they want to ensure that no shipments that are going out of the congo are sent that as they're sailing westward to the united states that are none of them are seized by the germans and this of course helps to build the the atomic bomb as we know the brutal uh and and genocidal dropping of the atomic bomb um which was which was made more than anything to demonstrate American hegemony and power and killed hundreds of thousands of, of civilians in Japan, but even you know going forward beyond that single event, what the u s wanted to do by working with the worst Belgian colonialists in the Congo was to ensure that this would be a base maintained, secured for Western imperialism and not for the Soviets. So after immediately after World War II ends, the U.S. turns their attention to making sure that this is strategically seized and not possibly falling in the Soviet hands. They continue in 1947 to receive 1,400 tons of uranium, 2,000 in 1951, 1,000 in 1953, 1,600 in 1953. And to make sure that they would continue to have this access to uranium to continue to build bombs. They actually set up a processing plant supported by a NATO military base in Kamina in Katanga. So yeah, the U.S. has this direct role on the ground making sure that these this uranium is preserved. Um, one other interesting note and then we can move on is that it is considered likely that this is how Israel obtained their a nuclear weapons program. So in 1968, Israel obtained yellow cake, which is processed uranium ore. Uh, France had stopped supplying them. France had previously been supplying uranium. And numerous sources believe that Israel managed to obtain 200 tons of yellow cake from Union Minière. The company collaborated with Mossad in shipping out the ore uh, to Genoa under a front company, which was then... Which then transferred the ore at night on the Mediterranean, which would then be sent to Israel to be used uh, in the Israeli nuclear weapons program. So, and then yeah, they paid Union Minière three point seven million through a friendly official at a petrochemical company to obtain access to this. So it just shows how Western imperialism utilized the resources at uh, the Shinkolobe mine in Katanga, which of course used enslaved labor just like every other mine in the Congo to obtain these resources and that then are used for more violence against Palestinians, against Japanese people.
2: Yeah, I just have one small thing that I wanted to add is just that, uh, again, with terms of our like, theoretical framework of unequal exchange, we were generally, well in the first episode we had about unequal, unequal exchange, we were talking about the sort of more purely economic aspects uh, in terms of preventing Uh, inflation, by securing these cheap inputs. And that's obviously um, a very important aspect, uh, probably in a sense, the most important aspect. But there's also this really important military strategic aspect uh, of uh, securing reliable access and monopolistic access over these really crucial uh, military resources. Oil is a classic, uh, which was really important in World War II. Hitler and you know controlling the oil fields and the Caucasus and in Romania and so on, so on. Uh, and then kind of in in uh, to a certain extent uh, losing the war because of the lack of oil and so on so on. The, but um, with uranium, it's also incredibly clear. And here, there's this real need to have uh, a government that's very, very um, easily controllable um, and and also. With, with with zero real sovereignty or autonomy, which allows uh, you know one you know country, group of countries, the the west 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 country, the Western countries in this case, to uh, control these resources and extract them at will, uh, because in a in a war situation, it's so important to uh, have total control of these resources and for there to be no sort of limit on that. So in that case, it really it really restricts the sovereignty of the country. And then, also in general, there's also the desire for it to be as cheap as possible uh, to maintain the war effort. To, for the war effort to be as cheap as possible to have as, or you know, to use as much as materials and so on in the war as possible, uh, which is not so economic as the economic, equal change we we're talking about before. But I just thought it'd be really important to point out how important this aspect is.
1: Um, yeah, definitely. And I, I think you see that with, in particular we're looking at this from both the macro level of the ownership and control of capital and mining in the debates around possession of the union Minière and its assets uh, after independence in particular, trying to see whether it should be nationalized, but we can also zoom down on that with the unequal exchange framework, also emphasizing labor and the super exploitation of labor. So Chris, I wanted to ask Uh, for a little bit more information about exactly how the mining industry in the Congo, of course, many of us know today the brutal super exploitation of labor that the mining industry uses in Coltan mining in our so-called artisanal mining. But can you talk a little bit about how this process has existed since the colonialism of the Congo under King Leopold?
3: Yeah. um, So as you brought up several times, mining in the Congo is essentially what is slave labor. Um, the wages, even though the wages that are paid most of the time, some of the time are so minimal that, you know, they can't cover the people's essential needs of like food, medicine, um, and shelter. But oftentimes, which kind of gets papered over a lot is that a lot of the times these don't function through wages. It just functions through, um, you know, direct violence, you know, murder, uh, assault, you know, now world famously, uh, rape, um and this is always kind of seen as something that is kind of like colonialism or imperialism went wrong not you know this is just an appendage of the system this is just the way uh, the way the system functions in order for us you know within the west to have what we need over here there needs to be the super exportation of someone else over there or else our conditions you know would probably look similar to what marx was describing and you know france or what Angus was describing in england at the time yeah, so um, Congo, you know, like many, um, you know, colonized countries beforehand, they were predominantly agrarian countries. They were probably rural, you know, people prim- primarily subsisted off of subsistence of agriculture, meaning that, you know, there wasn't a large scale, there wasn't large scale industries, there wasn't large scale cities that were, uh, had people engaged in wage labor. This is often a point uh, that people within the West uh, often use to say that, you know, Belgian colonialism have actually even been progressive uh, or that um, organization can't take place or social change can't take place within the Congo because, you know, you predominantly have a rural almost ignorant population that, you know, they won't be able to comprehend these ideas. They won't be able to, you know, uh, fraternize with their fellow workers and go on strikes. Um, But you do have, you know, this, you know this course of capitalism this really violent course of capitalism taking place in like congo in which you know people are primarily living also subs- substance agriculture you know you have these monopoly capitalist belgians that come in and they basically say you know you either work in these cities you provide you know belgian francs uh, taxes that you're not forced to pay because we know the quantity if not you know we burn your house down we take your family you know we take your wife your children and see, there's very famous photos of how that ended up for many Congolese people at the end. Um, so this kind of this kind of press ganging, you know, Congolese people, you know, into these mines, into these cities, kind of provide uh, a, a form of urbanization that kind of begins to kind of develop uh, some sort of uh, consciousness amongst the Congolese people, but from the very beginning, you know, whether that was in the rural areas or in the urban areas, there was always kind of like resistance uh, uh, to this and to this economic system. So we have this process
1: of the Union Mini developing the resources um, de- or developing its own access to the resources and industrialization to some extent, to a limited extent, um, which is definitely just uh, the technology, and capital equipment necessary to produce mining and extraction. As we talked about last episode, we have the Katanga Secession where Union Minier supports the Katanga Secession since they basically run Katanga. They're like a private, quasi-governmental entity. they their concessions. uh, We have a really great statistic from Justin Podor which said the Union Minier uh in the 1960s uh it controlled concessions totaling 7700 square miles which is nearly the area of New Jersey today in the in Katanga so essentially yeah they are like running their own state um with respect to how the size of the concessions that they have in the Congo uh but as an entity they initially support Katanga's secession to get rid of Lumumba but very quickly, they, as Argyra Emmanuel talks about in his article, they switch their loyalties against Shambe because Shambay is on the side of the settlers. And the settlers on the ground in, in the Katanga region want an independent state, whereas the Societe Generale de Belgique wants to have control, like this imperialistic control of the resources of Katanga. So it's not in in the Union Minière's interest to have secession. They they prefer the Congo to become reunited again, which at the end of this period we touched on last time with Gizenga as well. You do have a degree of reunification under Cyril Adola, who's the prime minister. This is in the 1960, 1963, 1964. But very quickly, and this is what we want to, dedicate a little bit of time in this episode touching on here, you have continued rebellion led primarily by Pierre Mulele, who is a Marxist slash Maoist inspired revolutionary in the Congo. You have what's called the Simba rebellion, which begins in 1964. You have uh, the role in Eastern Congo of such figures as Laurent Kabila, who will become very prominent in the 1990s again, Um, and you also have the intervention of Cuba's armed forces led by uh, Che Guevara in this time period. So, Chris, I wonder if you could touch a little bit on Mulele, a little bit about his background, how he came to be the leader of this rebellion against uh, the reunified Congo, primarily at this point led by Moishambe and Joseph Desiree Mobutu. Yeah,
3: um... So Pierre Mulele, he was he was working or he was supposed to work as the Minister of Education for Patrice Lumumba. Um, but it, you know, around 1960, that's Patrice Lumumba, you know, 1959, 1960, he really kind of succeeds in creating a national uh, political co- uh, coalition to kind of unify around the issue of uh, independence. You know, some people are involved in uh, creating ethnic I- identities to primarily push for, you know, their own independent States. You know, others are talking about, uh, the Belgians, you know, keeping the Belgians there, having the Bajo Congolese community, just kind of forming the relationship. Um, but Patrice Lumumba really succeeds, uh, in kind of unifying a national coalition. And one person that's particularly prominent in this is a man called Pierre Mulele. It is seen that around, you know, 56, 57, he is kind of exposed to Marxist ideas um, and he was extremely sympathetic towards it. He wasn't really able to kind of develop his own uh, political party um, in, in that process just because independence just happened so quickly. There was just so much to do because of it. Uh, when Patrice Lumumba is murdered, uh, Pierre Mulele he actually called out a lot of, uh, you know, the WA class, the petit bourgeois class of you know Congolese that immediately turned to begin compromising with the Belgians, uh, and even upon independence, when they they did uh, achieve independence, you know, some of the first things they were involved in was like raising their own salaries, you know, securing. Um, uh, administration posts for themselves and, you know, family and relatives and whatnot. And Pierre Mulele was extremely indignant of this, you know, independence. The primary push for independence was to see a material benefit for the people and not just, you know, to remove a white face and replace it with a black face. Um, he kind of returns to his Marxist roots uh, to kind of analyze, you know, um, what, what the state represents, whose interests it is representing, and you know according to his analysis, you know it's still representing the interests of international capital, this is where he believes that. And many people believe actually that you actually have to have a second independence. So although he didn't, like quite explicitly, you know talk about what many people talk about the national bourgeois revolution and then like the socialist revolution or something to that effect you can kind of see him, kind of like Mumba, like arriving at his own analysis that, you know, these people aren't it, we need to, you know, form a more, I would say, a Congolese working class or a class of the exploited party. Uh, Patrice Lumumba, I believe when he escaped from prison, he was just asking himself, why did all his, why was all his ministers collaborating? And he starts to flee towards Kisangani where the Simba rebellion was already uh, taking place or there's a kind of elements of it that were already taking place. So yeah. He then begins traveling around the world in search of international support, travels to the Soviet Union, travels to China, travels to Cuba, uh, very shamelessly travels to Egypt. I believe um, from what you can, see, yeah, from, from the evidence that you see that, that he got quite a, a lot of support from China. Um, I think he had about a year of training and education in China uh it was his choice actually to not return with arms uh he said that if the congolese were actually going to need to if the congolese were actually going to you know uh take state power that they would have to do it primarily through uh their own, own indigenous means that they wouldn't be able to uh rely upon you know aid coming all the way from china Uh, Cuba also received him, uh, but the extent of the relationship isn't really known because I think as you brought up Che Guevara, when he arrives in eastern Congo, he's like kind of mentioning looking for Mulele and whatnot. And I think there's also uh, evidence that uh, Pierre Mulele had had conversation with Fidel Castro. So that was kind of a weird relationship that, you know, it's still uh, looking to be dissected. So Pierre Mulele, he starts off his rebellion, actually, in 1963, after about like two years of preparation. He starts off the rebellion in 1963 Um Kuelu, which is in uh, kind of like southwest Congo. It's interesting that a rebellion here takes place and not stay in another place like uh, Kinshasa, where political power is kind of concentrated, Kisangani, where, you know, it's a really important commercial city. Or, you know, now famously like Eastern Congo or like Lumbumbashi or, well, Katanga, there was a secession, but I don't know if you can call it like a general uh, rebellion. And kind of like the reason, like kind of contrast between the Kuelu region and kind of other regions in the Congo, particularly Kinshasa, is when it's kind of like this rural character uh, where it it was absolute misery it was absolute deprivation um, and kind of the worst and most maximal form of underdevelopment. Whereas, you know, people in Kinshasa, they're still an aspiration of being able to integrate into kind of a Western more European uh, lifestyle, a Western more European uh, system. They're kind of seeing the cities, you know, maybe they're not able to walk in certain neighborhoods, but they see the lights in there. Uh, You know, they see like well-dressed people in there. They, You know, so there's kind of something that's aspirational about these cities for them, whereas people within uh, like the Kwilu region, the rural Congo, you know, probably the the images of people that have Africa right now of like, you know, tattered clothing, no water, uh, no plumbing, none of that stuff. That's pretty much what like the Kwilu region uh, was looking like, you know, dying from diseases left and right. So although it was ethnically where Pierre Mulele was from, and I think it was kind of easier for him to organize there, the primary social basis for the rebellion kind of taking place there, they essentially set up their own Soviet within the Quilu region, uh, taking state power, uh, setting up their own militia, uh, having their own prisons, uh, engaged in political education, uh, polit- uh, uh, politically organizing uh, youth and women. And that actually sparks the intervention of uh, it was a Belgian-led intervention with the support of the United States and uh, you know Cuban fascists. Uh, this intervention isn't really well known about. I believe Malcolm X just mentions at one time that you know they're raping and killing Congolese women and children, and a lot of people always are curious like what do they mean by that? Or when, when he speaks about the United States doing that, and this is he was talking about uh, their intervention within the Quilu region um the repression is absolutely uh, brutal estimates say that around 100,000 people are killed uh which you yeah, know it's it's really awful you know terrible like once again terrible images start coming out uh of the region uh there's you know particularly with uh, american soldiers there's actually like lynchings involved so lynching black like hanging black people from trees that they take images of that you know new york uh, not new york but uh, American newspapers refuse to publish. As this is a time during the United States where, like, racial strife is like really heightening. Uh, so the rebellion is significantly weakened, but the rebellion isn't de- uh, defeated, um, and the rebellion goes on for years, 1963 to 1968. Uh, during this period, uh, there's a lot of contrasting narratives, but it's seen that Pierre Moulin actually falls sick, um, and he goes to receive medical treatment within Brazzaville. Uh, Congo Brazzaville. This is where Joseph Mobutu uh, <that> was an of amnesty. Yeah, when Pierre Mulele actually accepted Mobutu's offer of amnesty, he had traveled to the Congo, was then arrested by Mobutu, tortured, and then killed. um And uh, Mobutu, the leader of his administration, and less was that it was kind of, kind of like the great unifier that left was the mold of. Who was a traitor? Who was working against Congolese interest? And Mobutu—he was about—he centralized the state. He brought peace, no violence.
2: One thing that I want to say about uh, Mulele and the uh, the rebellion in uh, in Kivu is that, uh, yeah, as you said, like the amount of people that were killed, uh, the Congolese that were killed by these uh, marauding bands of uh, neo-Nazi, uh, otherwise fascist. Uh, mercenaries from from South Africa, from the U.S., uh, and and also, as I understand, plenty of actual like World War II uh, Nazis, not just neo-Nazis, but actual yeah. Nazis that that fought on the German side. And they took and there are interviews you can see with them online where they're like really proud of what they did, and and plenty of the uh, leaders of these mercenary groups that were employed by Belgium, uh, well, and also I guess I suppose by um, by mabutu they have like you know books that they wrote and they're really proud of what they did and so on um and uh but yeah what i just wanted to note is that it's very ironic that this enormous massacre of uh congolese people were like uh, i've seen yeah different estimates like you know, 100 50,000 uh really huge amount of people um that this is, like, ignored. And then one of, you know, I mean, the the pretext for the whole intervention, the UN intervention and so on, against Lumumba was this uh, so-called genocide, this is how the West described it, uh, committed by the army against the separatist region, which was actually, at most, several hundred people dead. Uh, obviously, also, like, uh, you know, not bad, bad event, but also it's worth noting that this atrocity was committed by Mobutu's army. This is before, this is while Lumumba was still in power. And uh, the, there was you know probably good reason to suspect that this was committed. Uh, obviously, also Mobutu's military forces were always very disorganized and prone to various uh, atrocities against the civilian population and looting and so on. But there's also the high possibility it was committed as a sort of um, provocation to justify Western intervention. But anyway, it's just, yeah, it's definitely remarkable how the, uh, I mean, not remarkable, classic tactic, but the uh, Western fixation on the uh, so-called genocide by uh, Lumumba, Lumumba's army, uh, which killed a very small amount of people compared to the huge, huge amount killed in the counterinsurgency that followed. You know, that's what I wanted to say about Mulillie. And, and one, one thing that's also maybe worth touching on is uh, why the insurgency, um, I mean, I guess why Mulele left, well, why the insurgency ended, because um, various sources, I know that uh, Del Castro, uh, sorry, Castro, but uh, Che Guevara uh, in his time in the Congo, he he said that Mulele was the greatest. A uh, leader of the different insurgent groups that was actually really in contact with the people and so on, and that other insurgent groups were often kind of not really taking seriously building ties with the uh, with the masses and so on. Um, but in any case, Mulenga did uh, end the uh, the insurgency and eventually returned to Congo where he was tortured and killed. And one could wonder. I mean, how much he expected something like that to happen, how much he really trusted Ubuntu. Um As I recall, the um, Talaja uh, Nsangolo book talks, actually, about uh reasoning, I suppose, for leaving, uh ending the insurgency. As I recall, it was, to a large extent, motivated by uh, the geographical problems, the isolation of this a uh, single province uh, although that doesn't really seem entirely compelling but also just in general the fact that, that he was so really outnumbered by the mercenaries and they were not just, well, really int- they were quite a lot of mercenaries but they were just very very well armed very well funded um, and he had essentially really kind of very little to no weaponry I was wondering if Joseph or Chris went to weigh in about why the uh, People's War uh, came to an end
3: there were some, like, great successes of uh, the rebellion, but there were also like some great weaknesses as well. Um, you know, I think you already brought up the geographic isolation, not just internationally, but even internationally. The Quilu region, most regions within the Congo were extremely rural. You know, the Congo, you know, it's essentially the size of half the United States and the total of independence with a population of just 20 million people. So the Congo... You know today it's a very very sparse country specifically, specifically the rural regions um but at the time it was just extremely extremely sparse so kind of spreading across regions to you know from the west to, to not so all Kiwi regions was not something that pierre mulele was able to develop um the rebellion was like uh, uh, internationally, uh, isolated. This was kind of something that Pierre Moulet, uh, and had to that he believed that international arms, especially at the beginning of the rebellion, uh, international aid uh, would have made the rebellion try as it would have made people rely on themselves and more reliant upon producing, uh, their own you know, good that they need for the rebellion, such as arms, such as medicine, as well as uh, foods. Um, that proved to be false. Uh, there's really no excuse about it because most, I guess, most uh, revolutions, most rebellions across the world were heavily, heavily not re- reliant, to, so to say, but they received heavy, heavy uh, international aid, um, not even just in the form of medicines and food. But also in the form of international support and really publicizing what was going on in these countries, because that was a strong way the West operated was just a media blackout, ignore what's going on in these countries, or two, uh, obscure. So, you know, call the people terrorists, you know start referring to you know use women's rights as kind of like a cudgel and not actually looking at the general conditions which produces you know uh, oppression against like women uh so, rural humanitarianism uh so on and so forth you know having the inner the united nations inter- to quote unquote peacekeepers, but often heavily favoring um, forces in the area uh, as well, Che Guevara, oh, uh, and just to uh, kind of touch upon, once again, on the general isolation, is that Che Guevara actually entered the Congo through Tanzania. So Che Guevara was probably based in eastern Congo. Uh, Priyamu Mulele was already in western Congo. So they're about, you know, 3,000 kilometers apart. So, you know, them kind of meeting up and kind of joining forces kind of became, you know, diff- difficult by... Uh, by the geography of the Congo as well, uh, it depends between the rebellion and say the, the rebellion, and uh, let's just throw this in there. And like say, like the Katanga session, I think as Peter brought up, was that we uh, already had. A uh, strong politiciz- politicization of it. Uh, the people were expected to be politically conscious. Um, this was kind of like a, a Marxist, you know, Maoist influence that they had. Was that people were ex- expected to politi- be politically conscious and to take part in it themselves? Uh, you know, not only as, you know, the men, but also women as well as children. It was supposed to mobilize everybody. In uh, the other regions, it was more so what they would say was fighting for loot, particularly within the Simba Rebellion, uh, they were just kind of upset with kind of their maneuvering within Kinshasa politics. They weren't able to uh, attain the administration positions that they wanted. So now they're kind of involved in, you know, using our forces uh, to, you know, uh, get those positions, which is like a dominant view in the Congo today, and if people are, uh, whether that's peace peaceful Violent protest, it's automatically seen as, you know, just offer a that's all they really want. Um, and then, with comparison to the Katanga secession, I lot of people view it entirely as uh, the work of the Belgian settlers, uh, not some of indigenous, those indigenously Congolese. Um,
2: so, yeah, I think that's, that's a really interesting uh, look at the Mulele uh, insurgency. And, and I guess we can sort of say, so, you know, I think often when you read uh, left-wing Marxist analysis of various uh, what you can call failed revolutions and so on, there can sometimes be a tendency to. I mean, I think, in the sense, I get this feeling to maybe overthink the extent to which there was some kind of you know internal contradictions that led to the failure, uh, and that's definitely very useful. But also, there are also situations where there's just a real preponderance of force on one side, um, and I think you can kind of see this with the Mulele rebellion, in which they managed to achieve some really huge successes, but achieve geographic isolation um, and the uh, yeah preponderance of force on the, uh, uh, the imperialist side kind of made them doomed. But I guess in this context, that's where the importance of uh, international solidarity is. Really huge. Where if there'd been, uh, you know, neighboring countries and also in general the the global the global community, so to speak, had uh, taken more the side of uh, these uh, different insurgent forces against the illegitimate um, coup government, really, uh, then there could have been better chances. And I mean that's um, something that did happen to an extent, you know. And there, were, there was, you know, the, the Soviet Union made a, a quite a big deal of bringing this uh the whole issue of, of congo up at the uh in the un and so on especially around the time of lumumba assassination but then and, and then also the other pan-africanist uh, pan-arabist nations and so on were and various third world uh non-aligned movement nations were bringing up this topic but uh and there were also different things with uh training of the rebels in Congo, Brazzaville, and also by Algeria. That was a quite a big thing of uh, setting up various training camps for the uh, the progressive rebels in Congo. But it was also, it was just very difficult as well to geographically coordinate um, these different, different regions where there weren't always friendly uh, bordering nations and and then the fact that, you know, South Africa, you know, in terms of national solidarity and bordering nations, then there was South Africa really close by, uh, which was able to uh, quite easily ship all the huge amounts of you know, its people and mercenaries and so on, and use that as a base. So anyway, it's a very difficult situation. And I think it's not worth uh, always trying to say that, you know, the revolutionaries themselves had some kind of wrong idea. They... Everyone does to some extent, but you also have to recognize the um, the real, I guess, material objective
1: weakness. There wasn't really the fault of the people involved, anyway. The so we have this the Simba rebellion, Chigavara, Pierre Molele. In the background of all of, all of this happening is the rivalry between Shambe, who we went into depth on in the last episode as the leader of the Katanga Secession, and Joseph Desire Mobutu, who leader will be known as Mobutu Sese Seko. So this rivalry, I would I would say is primarily, and we can discuss this, I think the three of us have a variety of of opinions on this. Um, Shambe as someone who allies himself primarily with Lunda ethnic interests, uh, whereas Mobutu represents a military figure, someone who's invested definitely in his own power. So some really interesting, I want to read a couple of quotes from Intelaja, and then we can discuss a little bit amongst ourselves. But one thing, for example, when he talks about Shombe, he talks about the fact that Shombe had laid the... So he has this quote where he says... Uh, At the Economic Roundtable Conference, for example, the Belgians laid the groundwork for transferring much of the state portfolio of Union Minière in colonial companies back to Belgium through privatization while leaving virtually all the public debt to the new state. And Sean who's prime minister in 1963, is largely okay with this, primarily because he is invested in the development of Katanga. So he's someone, I think, who represents himself as kind of a regionalist uh, to some extent there is also the fact that during the Katanga secession Union Miniere transferred 1. 1.2 1.25 billion Belgian francs directly into Shambe's bank account which was an advance on 1960 taxes which should have been paid to Lumumba's government as uh, as revenues or taxes that the Union Miniere owed them so Union Miniere and Shambe have this quite close relationship where he's literally getting paid by the by the main mining mining co- by the main mining company in katanga directly into his bank account for his services but what's interesting as as Emmanuel talks about is that shambé ultimately is not as we talked about a little bit he's not the man for the main job that comes after after the rebellions after Mulele is is executed by mobutu shambé is seen as a regionalist someone who doesn't have the main interests i think uh, of the imperialists at heart he's mainly just interested in himself and in particular protecting the interests of the settlers uh in the in their kind of collaboration so what happens is that mobutu schemes in order to take over uh from from uh, shambe and you have this very interesting incident where basically mobutu uh, ends Shambe's regime in 1965 in the middle of all of this conflict, actually right at the very end of the Simba Rebellion, when Che Guevara is just about to leave the Congo. They've been fighting against Shambei primarily, but Mobutu uses and takes advantage of the chaos uh, that's occurring to overthrow Shambei, similar to how he overthrew Lumumba, uh, as high commander of the National Congolese Army, he proclaimed a coup d'etat on November twenty fourth, 1965. Shambe went into exile to live in Madrid. In 1967, he was accused of treason, and one of the charges against him was that he had acted to the economic, to the detriment of the independence of the Congo when he had signed the, Belgio, the Belgo-Congolese agreement in 1965 uh, and since the roundtable. He basically... You, Mobutu used what chambe had done in all of his collaborations with Union minier with the Belgian with Belgian imperialists and this 1965 agreement that was signed which also helped uh dump all of the debt onto the Congo and and it would take on state debt one of the things that that 1965 agreement did was set up a like a debt servicing belgo Congolais them gestion, which was to service the the debt that the congo took on under having nationalized or not nationalized but basically the the state debts that that the belgian state but the belgian colonial state had taken from mining the congolese state took after independence so it it dumped all of these debts. They didn't really get much in exchange. Of course, Shambe, as we noted, got these personal payments from uh from the Union Mini So he was happy with that. But Mobutu used this very successfully as an accusation against him. Um, maybe I can just also just mention uh quickly that uh we
2: were talking about the uh uh white mercenary forces that oh, yeah killed around a hundred thousand people uh in the in the where in the area, the, the Kidu area is course, uh, where Malulu's insurgency operated. And I just made a mistake saying it was Mabudu paying them, because actually at this point it was Chambe that was actually paying for them, really, uh, which is worth emphasizing. And uh, and I guess just uh, maybe just an overview for listeners about um, the whole situation with uh, Katanga and Chambe and the settlers is that it was because Katanga was, as a region, was so rich in um, in various minerals that uh, a, a huge amount of settle of white settlers moved to this uh, part of Congo by the by the 50s and 60s, and which made which meant that it had the highest amount of settlers, uh, like I guess, have capita, the highest density as opposed to settlers in all of uh, Congo. Along with being extremely economically important, like you mentioned. And so on. And then Chambe's role here as well uh, is that as being a member of this kind of uh royal family, he was also one of the the only millionaires, black black millionaires in Congo. Uh so very, very privileged person. Um uh, and uh he felt uh in a sense solidarity with the settlers because of the influx. Of uh, Baluba ethnicity, uh, Congolese, into Katanga. And we talked a bit about Baluba uh, Lulua conflict in the previous episode. You know, Baluba and Lulua actually are actually very similar. And it's very kind of like Nsangolo talks about how it's very kind of invented by the colonial administration ethnic conflict. But basically, it is to say that the Baluba were kind of a majority, uh, much more numerous ethnic groups, um, and they were quite oppressed uh, and they were forced to sort of look for other places to live uh, quite often and, and they entered the Katanga area and then uh, for work and jobs and so on and then um, Chombe felt threatened by them to an extent as this member this as this kind of part of the uh, elite of the uh, colonial, class in general and educated in America as well just which is, which is by an American missionary school or something but um, and his family bailed him out for all of his failed business projects which all like inevitably failed uh, but in any case so that's how there was kind of this uh, one of the reasons for this uh, convergence of interest between the white settlers and Chamba, along with just Chamba wanting, just opportunistic, looking for a way to have power, and the settlers were going to give him the sort of power as this kind of puppet uh, head of the um, um, breakaway republic. Or so yeah,
1: yeah, exactly, and and as that breakaway republic is shut down by Mobutu, who also as we were we were talking about a little bit before we started recording, uh, he represented himself as this centralizing figure who could yeah. unite the Congo, unite what he would call Zaire. So he just a little interesting anecdote, which was that he went so far to take out Chame as an adversary that, with the assistance of the CIA, he in June of 1967 had Sean kidnapped while he was on a prearranged flight from Palma de Mallorca to Ibiza, uh, where he was going to have a meeting concerning a fictitious investment project. So Peter, just as you were mentioning all, he was involved in all these kind of like scam investments and businesses. Uh, He was kidnapped by the CIA and then, Later would die in an Algerian prison two years later for his crimes. So Mobutu, I think this rep- this represents really his kind of complicated political legacy, right? Um in, Zongo, uh, in Zalaja, he he talks a lot about how Mobutu is a very confusing figure politically. That he has ultimately, he is he's petty bourgeois, he's a collaborator, a comprador, but he does this under the veneer of. Zaireanization, uh, what he called economic nationalism. He even once labeled himself an anti-capitalist revolutionary, which I think shows this kind of confusing ideology. And one way to segue into that, just to continue with our analysis of Union-Miniere, I just want to update and then read a quote from Intelaja, and then we can discuss amongst ourselves a little bit. But this trajectory of what happens with Union-Miniere in 1966, when Mobutu is in power, the Congolese government announces its decision to expropriate Union Minier and transfer its assets to a new company. It makes the law that all foreign companies have to have a head office in in the Congo, which Union Minier did not. And so Union Minier and the Zairean government under Mobutu go through this long extended process uh, of expropriation nationalization which the union media resists heavily uh, so instead Mobutu uses the assets that have been seized and establishes Gekko Min which is uh, the state owned company and he initially has a 60% ownership by the Zairean state but in the end that becomes 100% because he can't find private uh, partnerships necessarily who will back this until later on <laughs> One of the one of the claims that he makes was the fact that Union Minière owed the Congolese state seven point five billion francs that it hadn't paid because the Congolese state had an eighteen percent participation in the shares. but the Belgi- but Union Minière refused to pay. Um they basically argued that by nationalizing their assets, the Zairean state had had repudiated their commitments, um, which they had previously signed under Shambei. So they were trying to hold uh the post-Shambay government accountable for the bad deals that Shambay had had entered them into. Eventually in the end, they they reached sort of an agreement whereby they would phase out Belgian management in Congolese mines and and Gekomin would be a state a, primarily a state-owned enterprise uh, so, for example, the last Belgian in the management of mines in the Congo retired on June 30th, 1974. And after this, there were no longer any Belgians in the administration um, of the, the mines themselves. And then I just want to read this and we can discuss a little bit more about like what exactly was Mobutu's ideology behind this nationalization, which in the end, I should note also... Uh, that the nationalization ultimately ended in privatization, anyways, primarily by a shift from Belgian to American hegemony, whereby as Belgian capital is removed, and Intelaja and also talks about the fact that the US is the main force advising Mobutu at this time. The CIA is very present. He receives a lot of military aid from the US as a strong ally against uh, communism in Africa and supporter of apartheid and supporter of uh, UNITA and Angola. So on page 148, Intelaja talks about how Zaireanization, uh, he talks about how Rather than weakening the links of economic dependence, the nationalization of the copper industry strengthened them. The Mobutu regime settled for compromises and face-saving agreements that its propaganda machine did not hesitate to sell to the people as real victories in the war for, quote, economic independence. The fundamental reality that this episode demonstrates, and the one that the 1973 Zaireanization of foreign-owned commercial and agricultural enterprises confirmed, was... Uh, is that the basic goal of the Mobutu regime was to reinforce its bargaining power vis-a-vis foreign capital in order to provide the new ruling class with a strong economic base made up of the petty bourgeois leaders of the independent struggle and the newer re- recruits among university graduates, military officers and rich merchants. This class was the main beneficiary of Mobutu's dictatorship. And he also mentions one really interesting fact, which is that the price of copper was relatively high early on while Mobutu was doing his Zairianization, where he changed Congolese francs to the currency of the Zaire and nationalized the copper industry. The copper price was quite high, primarily due to the Vietnam War. And it was needed, as we were mentioning earlier, it was needed for all these electrical circuits and machines uh, to be used by the United States for the Vietnam War. But once the war ended, the price of copper collapsed. And so the mean industry that Mobutu ran in the Congo was very ineffective. It was very unprofitable and operated at a loss, primarily because the copper prices were so low. So maybe we can discuss... Chris if if you want to start first and then Peter we can discuss a little bit about what exactly was Mobutu's ideology uh what did the nationalization of the mines within the Congo do did it ultimately help in moving out of the dependency that the Congo had on the west for for capital or in the end did it just reinforce that
3: yeah so that's a really good question um like in this kind of like uh, question, there's kind of a lot that just delves back into the Congolese history you know, developing capacity um, during the process of social change, uh, kind of cutting off dependency from the West uh, and so on and so forth. I think when people talk about Mobutu's ideology, I think it's better to talk about what the United States would allow him to do, the capacity that they would allow him to function under um, so clearly the United States didn't see nationalization, uh, or as they kind of portrayed as nationalization, but as you said, immediately afterwards, foreign capital, foreign finance, and, uh, especially foreign experts had to be brought back in again, uh, to kind of run these industries because Mobutu was so incapable. And that's kind of, that, that, that's kind of the history of his administration with, uh, the Malaya Rebellion, they can't put it down. So they have to bring in mercenaries, uh, with the of the state they, they aren't capable of doing it. So they have to, you know, bring in uh, foreign advisors to do it, you know, which, who completely administrate the state in our interest. Uh, with, I, I don't know if you can say that Mobutu has, uh, ideology like himself, uh, that Mobutu himself doesn't necessarily, I think he's just, I view him generally as just an opportunist. Hmm. But what I see Mobutu is, is if you speak about, if you talk to a lot of people, um, even supporters of Mubutu just, you know, using kind of cultural chauvinism, using national chauvinism to kind of crush uh, movements of exploited and oppressed people, um, to maintain, you know, economic hierarchies, whether that's domestic or internationally. Uh, I think that's kind of the function that the people that enabled Mubutu allowed him to kind of function at. His, his only role that they relate about was, was he able to maintain an international and even a well, really an in international economic hierarchy. Uh, I think it you know, kind of people that are supporters of him and his administration um, to kind of massage uh, their self-esteem Is more, is he able to uh, keep a domestic hierarchy, um, you know, between the people in the cities, in the villageois, the villagers, um, you know, kind of, you know, and so, uh, people like that. So that's why I, how I describe ideology
2: yeah I think it's it's interesting I mean uh, one thing that uh, Nsangolo Talaja talks about in his book as well is he he kind of has a critique of them as well as being I uh, suppose well beholden to this um, uh, mindset which he compares to like the he he calls it like the Nkrumah uh sort of perspective referring to the other famous uh post-colonial African a socialist leader, which focused more on, I mean, this is what Zangolo Talaja says, focused more on political independence rather than uh, economic independence. And Zangola and Talaja brings up the fact that uh, Lumumba didn't attend the economic round table in 1960, uh, but that Chambé did. Um, obviously, Lumumba's views changed as well. Um, during his life, and it, not, not just in regards to economic policy, it's also possible to note the fact that, uh, you know, before 1960, he was quite a much more moderate uh, nationalist politically, and he had sort of more positive things to say about Belgium, like many, uh, I guess, of the evaluators at the time, but his position quite radicalized um, In the context as well of mass uprisings against the Belgian uh, colonists that took place in the late 1950s. So, anyway, Lumumba's positions changed throughout his life. And it's not, uh, yeah. But um, in terms of uh, the political ideology, I think it's interesting as well. There's a really, really interesting. Sort of Marxist-Leninist, uh, with also lots of Maoist influences, uh, called Ab- Abdul uh, Babu, and uh, he was from, uh, uh, from as I recall, from from Tanzania, uh, or yeah. just yeah, 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 Tanzania. And he wrote really interesting, interesting books. Uh, one of which called uh, African Socialism or Socialism in Africa, something kind of like that. Uh, and he really critiqued the. Uh, lots of these quite famous i suppose uh, post colonial um self proclaimed socialist leaders he wasn't talking about mbutu obviously he was talking about uh, nkrumah and he was talking about uh in particular i mean there was the uh, i mean the the leader of uh tanzania which i forgot his name I guess remind me uh sort of left wing On- yeah 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 and uh for whom uh, Babu worked uh, as a political, like one of the ministers, but then also Nyerere imprisoned him at a certain point for, I can't remember what exactly, uh, anyway, but he criticized them for um, these different leaders for focusing, kind of having this sort of, I guess, classically utopian socialist worldview that uh, focused more on the peasantry, was kind of anti-industrial and against industrialization, uh, and it's in a certain sense, like kind of anti-Marxist uh, as well. And uh, he criticized the sort of economic results of this and the uh, tendency towards reaction as well. But uh, it's kind of interesting thinking about Mabutu as well in this context in the sense that he... As I understand, he presented his regime as his regime, his government. Uh, it's, it's a regime, you know, <laughs> it, uh, whatever that means. But uh, he represented it as representing these kind of, you know, original uh, Congolese values and, you know, the whole idea of well, Zairian values and the whole idea of uh, this emphasis on Zaireanization, which definitely would have been very appealing for, I think, many people at that time, especially in the context that we're talking about the, uh, the army mutiny which uh I think maybe we' we'll talk about it, but essentially, there was a very important army mutiny uh while the movement was still alive, which was uh they were basically protesting against the uh, well, first of all, the fact of very high salaries of the uh, upper officer officer of the officers, military officers, but also the fact that military officers were overwhelmingly still belgian uh, white. And there was this really famous instance where this top Belgian officer painted on the on this whiteboard, uh, like, and he wrote on the whiteboard like, "Before colonialism equals after colonialism," in very kind of dramatic fashion. Kind of, and basically just to like piss off the uh, soldiers, essentially, which definitely pissed them off, and uh, there was a a big mutiny and so on. Um, but this was also in a sense directed against. Lumumba. Lumumba, didn't want to increase uh, the uh, the incomes and conduct this uh, Africanization of the uh, of the army at this point, and it does seem like to an extent, Mobutu uh, sort of I guess, which been instrumentalized or took advantage of this um, this kind of totally justified. Uh, like nationalist feeling in Congo um, and sort of did the things that Lumumba didn't do or didn't have the time to do. And it, by so doing, was able to sort of avoid uh, being vilified as this kind of neocolonial puppet, at least by some sections uh, of Congolese society that might have otherwise done so. And I think you can definitely, I think Chris, you were saying how his, his, uh, his regime really favored the, uh, kind of the urban population uh, of Congo as well. And you can see how, you know, it was really favoring this kind of, what we're talking about, this Edval class class uh, that could get lots of good opportunities uh, under Mamutu in terms of joining his various, you know, like cultural different brigades that he had and all the different kind of, uh, there was lots of, there were lots of benefits for these different, you know, cultural workers and so on. Uh, you know, petty bourgeoisie, essentially, intellig- intelligentsia, uh, while the, the um, you know, the rural majority was living very badly. Um, so, in that sense, it's, and, you know, I mean, obviously the petty bourgeoisie is also the class that's quite tends towards these kind of nationalistic, cultural nationalist uh, political expressions. And in that sense, the Mabutu regime was quite quite appropriate for that. Um, but it is it is also interesting analyzing it in terms of these Cold War, this Cold War tendency for this, you know, uh kind of anti-Marxist socialism that was against industrialization and was kind of seemingly ambiguous in the third world, in the in the Cold War, like non-aligned in a certain sense, but in reality was kind of more really on the side of the West. Um which, in a sense, also is quite similar to what we most people talk about when they talk about fascism, I guess, as kind of this third way. Um, you know, not capitalism, not communism, and so on. Anyway, it's interesting thinking about, I think, Mobutu in the context of all these different things.
1: It's funny that you mention that because Mobutu's regime was actually called para-fascist by a historian of, of the Congo because of his rhetoric where he would say things like, "Neither his... The logo or the slogan for the the only legal party, which was called the movement or the revolution, of course, like you know, using this revolutionary uh imagery, but their slogan was neither left nor right nor even center, so they portrayed themselves as as this kind of like outside of ideology um of course, their ideology was named Mobutuism, uh which was meant to represent like his his emphasis on a couple primary things like authenticity uh which was mainly through africanization renaming like renaming elizabethville to lubumbashi for example uh renaming all of the cities changing the name of the currency but what actually changed i think we can conclude this episode by talking about how in all of this unequal exchange remains the same One thing I find very interesting, for example, is that in the conclusion of the agreements of negotiation with the Union Minière, Mobutu, for all his rhetoric on nationalization, expropriation, whatnot, uh, made a clause to agree that the salaries of foreign technicians that were assisting the Gekomine after expropriation, Belgian foreign technicians or generally Western foreign technicians assisting the mining, would be pegged to the 130% of the cost of living index in Belgium. So the wages that they were acquiring were still tied directly to that imperial mode of living based on high consumption uh, in the West as Emmanuel analyzes these high wages for uh, Western consumption. While, of course, Congolese workers, on the other hand, Mobutu banned and made all trade unions illegal except his centralized trade union that was operated by the movement for the the People's Revolution that he co-opted and made his his own party. And at the end of the day, uh, I think Peter, I'm glad you brought up Babu because I think it really demonstrates how trying to stake this alternative position in the end just led to Mobutu. Of course, he's not necessarily genuine either, but it. It's always a way to mask the ultimate interest of achieving that economic independence for instead having the superficial, uh, you know, authenticity uh, of cultural nationalism. Because in the end, as copper prices are collapsing, by 1978, as early as 1978, Mobutu had to appeal to the British, the French, and the Americans for... 1 billion in substantial assistance to gecomin uh, and in the end in 1991 the world bank would step in to provide funding this is as uh, as we'll talk about possibly in a, a coming episode soon in the 1990s as as mobutu dies and is overthrown um everything is collapsing and the mining industry collapses and is essentially privatized by the west so in the end nationalization didn't really matter because it just resulted in Western takeover anyways. And yeah, and I think I think that's just a note to conclude on. One, one last thing would just be to point out that today, most of the mining in the Congo, I think 74.8% of mining in the Katanga region, for example, is owned by Glencore, which is the Swiss conglomerate uh, which is known for their their human rights abuses and violations of of labor laws and you and on the other hand union mini i think very interestingly has converted itself into umicore which is a which represents actually the other end of the value chain so to speak like they've moved they basically no longer have any assets in mining but have moved to primarily be in Uh, recycling and refining of minerals and the creation of electric batteries. Um, uh, They create like the, the EVs for electric vehicles, stuff like that. They're mainly have washed their hands of their history, their colonial history of mining and have put themselves on the other side of the value chain. So somebody else, some subcontractor like Glencore or some of the like Congolese assets or even Especially nowadays, Chinese mining companies can do the dirty work of mining, and a company like Umicore, which is has this colonial inheritance, can do the refining process. And they actually award themselves, uh, I believe, and call themselves like one of the world's one of the world's like cleanest, most energy friendly, green friendly uh, companies, um, while also being literally the like modern iteration of Union Minier which is one of the most villainous companies in history which is I think fitting and shows just how little has changed after all this the false expropriation and, and how much work and struggle continues to be done to actually have accountability for the crimes of Union Minier I just wanted to say one small thing is that it's really
2: insane how Mobutu who was kind of oversaw the murder of uh, Lumumba still like you know named the city uh, Lumumba and sort of instrumentalized his legacy, um, and it's just yeah it's it's, uh, it's pretty fascinating. But yeah, just emphasize that Mobutu was responsible,
1: yeah. most, most responsible for
2: killing Lumumba.
1: Yeah, but um, yeah. yeah, and they were friends, and I mean that's a sad yeah. part. Right, is like they were yeah. allies initially. Yeah, um, they met in the 1950s and Mobutu mm. was his secretary of state, his personal aide. Um, mm.
2: I, I think hopefully in the, in a future episode, I think we should just fully cover. Yeah. Love, I think really cool. and I'm going to try excellent. and read the DeWitt book about the assassination of yeah. the and stuff. And, and I think it would be really cool to try and do some kind of chronology sort of thing there um but what about chris with anything because i think chris you have to head off soon is there anything else you want to say at the end end of the
3: i'm um, like closing up for the video for the podcast no there's nothing else Um, probably for future episodes um I don't know. Like, I think eventually we'll get there into the 1997 invasion by, you know, led by Rwanda. Mm. But that—that's kind of like, I guess, I think that's really interesting, particularly with like African politics and the world situation today. Yeah, is that a lot of like, just kind of like hungry history. A lot of it's obscured, confusing, and rendered intelligible. So that's kind of something I'm looking forward to.
2: Yeah. So I mean, that—that's what originally really interested me in, in all this history, but. Also, when you go back and reread the stuff, it's also just really interesting everything else that happens.